But my favorite, one of my favorite versions of the Christmas story is in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, in the Word, who God is, the full expression of God, of His will, His character, and His nature, became flesh and dwelt among us. God took on flesh. God took on flesh to live among you and me. Religion tries to teach us how to come up to God's level by the things we do. The gospel does the unthinkable. It says God, a holy, righteous, absolutely powerful God, came down to us to meet us where we are so that he might bring us up to where he is. You can't get up to God by your own jumping. You can't jump high enough. You can't be good enough. You can't be strong enough. But if you admit your weakness and your need and you're willing to humble yourself and your pride and say, I need you, he's come down to you to bring you up to heights you can't begin to imagine. That's the kind of God we serve. Let's pray. Father, as we're in this wonderful Christmas season and it's coming to its climax this week, Father, we thank you again tonight, today, for how much you've loved us and you've demonstrated your love for us for while we were still sinners, while we were still rebellious, while we were still trying to do our own thing and make our own way and do things ourselves, you loved us so much that you gave your son's, precious son's life in our place, that we might have life, not death, that we may have a future and not a fear. And so, Father, we come to this God who's loved us that much this morning. We come today that we might know more of you, your word says there are things that our eyes have not seen, that our ears have not heard, nor has it even entered our heart, all for that you have prepared for those who love you. But your spirit has been given to us to reveal them to us. And so we look to the Holy Spirit today to reveal to us what you've given to us we haven't seen, what you want for us we don't know yet, the desire of your heart for us, Lord, that we have not, has not yet entered our heart. We look to the Holy Spirit and the anointing of his spirit and the anointing upon your word to do that, that we might satisfy the desire of your heart. And for the grace to do that, we thank you. We put ourselves into your hands right now and trust the Holy Spirit to bring forth what he desires to today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We've been talking about worship this a good part of this year. We're talking about what worship is about, and but God is after, true, seeking true worshipers. And in John chapter 4, Jesus says that to the Samaritan woman. He says, For my Father longs for true worshipers, and those, are him, those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we're looking at it from the side of what God desires, what God wants. What's God's intention when we come here, when we come to gather together for church on Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night or any other time we gather, Tuesday night when we come together that God is here and God wants to meet with us. God wants to do certain things. And we see, them, see church so often as, you know, what are we bringing? What are we getting out of this? What's happening for us? And how are people dressed? And all the natural affairs of life that we're just so, because that's, we are natural people. We're spiritual beings in a natural body. And so we spend so much of our time so conscious of that world which is why Galatians warns us in chapter 5 that we need to learn to be led by the Spirit. We need to learn to be spiritually minded, not so physically minded, not so naturally minded. Because Christians that are naturally minded, the Bible calls carnal Christians. They're Christians that operate out of their flesh. And it warns, it says, that, 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 that for such, when we do that, we're living in death. It doesn't mean we're physically dying or spiritually dying, but we're li living in that atmosphere of death, of separation from God, even though we may not be separated from Him. But when we walk in the Spirit, when we're conscious of the things of the Spirit, when we're more aware of the Spirit that lives in us and the world that's around us, then that's life and peace. So if you're struggling this morning with needing life and peace, there's where your answer is. You need to sow more to the Spirit and less to the flesh. And that's not necessarily food, it's what you're spending your time looking at, reading, talking about, what's, what's, what your attention is on. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap from the flesh corruption, but if you sow to the Spirit, you'll leap, reap life. And so we're learning to do that, we're learning to be more spiritually sensitive, and Jesus said those true worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth, and we'll talk more about that just a little later on. But right now what we're looking at is this part that every time we come together, God has a desire for it. God's here, God wants to do something. He's, he's looking for, expecting, desiring something in our midst. We don't have to work God up says in, the, in, in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 30, but it's also 
Paul quotes it in Romans 10. He says, you know, you don't have to call Christ down out of heaven. You don't have to bring him up out of the depths of the earth. He's here. The words are near you. They're in your mouth and in your heart. It's right there. He's here. He's, he wants to manifest himself. Every need in this room right now, every need, physically, financially, spiritually, emotionally, relationship, God who's in this room right now has the ability to meet it that fast beyond anything you can think or ask. And he desires to do that. So what holds it back? It's our end. Because we don't realize the opportunity we have. Just like the woman at the well did not realize the opportunity she had. She's standing there in the presence of God and all she can think about is wet water. And he brings her attention up out of that water to a spiritual gift that he has for her. The gift of eternal life that he has for her. And we've talked about that in the past. So what we're looking at now is we're looking at, from God's side, the Bible tells us a story of God's desire for us and His expression of that desire. God's come after us. We don't have to come after Him. He's come after us. All we have to do is respond to His love and respond to His overtures. We saw back in the beginning, God created man for this purpose. He created that man and that woman in the beginning for the very purpose of being with them, walking with them, talking to them, being physically in all of His glory, all of His power, all of his holiness, being physically walking with them, talking to them face to face. I don't know, he may have put his arm around them. We don't know that, but there was nothing, no restriction, no veil, nothing in between them. And then the sin that they committed of rebellion against him, taking things into their own hands, it created this wall because God is a holy God, a righteous God, and no sin can dwell in his presence without being instantly judged, just as the light, when it comes on, it judges the darkness. The darkness has to go because the light comes on, because the light is a more powerful force than darkness. In the same way, righteousness and holiness is infinitely more powerful than unrighteousness and sin. And when righteousness comes into the presence of unrighteousness, sin has to go. But it doesn't just go like the darkness goes. It gets judged. And so God has a problem. He can't just come and put his arms around people because of the sin, the, the, the pride, the self, self-sufficiency. And that's the root of all it. Self is the root of all sin establishing our own, our, own ident- our own independence apart from God. And so, so that's what that first couple was, in, was tempted to do. That's what they did. We've seen the story of how God wanted to restore all this and restore this relationship, but he couldn't just come down and start again because the, of the depth of this fall. So God has to work to bring a process about by which he can begin to dwell among his people. And so we saw he started by choosing a people for himself. He didn't just choose an existing people. He chose a man, and out of that man and and his wife, he created a nation for himself, the nation of Israel. And then we saw that God brought that nation down into Egypt for protection and for provision. They overstayed their need to be there, and so God, they, they ended up in bondage. When they cried out to this God that they were in covenant with, God brought them out of the bondage, and he wanted to take them into a land he'd prepared for them. But to get there, they had to go through a, a, a desert, the Sinai Peninsula. And God had a short way to take them, but he couldn't take them the short way because he knew them that if they saw the enemies, they'd be afraid and they'd go back into Egypt. And his goal was to get them to this promised land. So out there in this wilderness... God instructs the leader, Moses, to bring them down after several months down to the bottom of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And God says, I want to come down on that mountain and I want to appear to my people. I want to be with my people. So Exodus 19, 17 says, and Moses brought the people out to meet their God. That's the scripture God gave me for this congregation. Every time we come together, God wants us to come out to meet with him the way Moses brought the people out. But they became afraid when they saw God because he came down on that mountain in thunder and lightning. They became afraid and they ran away from him and said, Moses, you go talk to God. We're afraid of him and tell us what he says and we'll do what he says. Of course, they didn't. Because the reason God wanted them to see him was because so that they would develop a respect and a fear for him so that they would not sin. But because they didn't do what God said, even though they intended to obey him, they didn't have the strength to obey him because they hadn't allowed God to build in them what they needed. And so, 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 so they, they rebel against him. They won't enter into the promised land when they come to the edge of it. So God has to leave them for another 39 years wandering around the wilderness. So when that generation's all died off and the new leaders come up, Joshua, they come to the promised land a second time. And this time the generation that grew up, at, not in Egypt, but in the wilderness, grew up seeing God provide for them every day, that generation enters in. We saw then in this wilderness for this 40-year period, God says, I, want to, I still want to be among my people. 
as rebellious and as troublesome as they are. So he calls Moses up back up on the mountain and gives Moses a plan to, do, to, to, to build something called a tabernacle, which just means a dwelling place. And we've studied it. I'm not going to go through it again. It was a tent, it was a, a tent and, a, and a border around it. But the heart of all of this was two rooms, a holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And in the holy, holy place, the priests would come in once a week and they would eat in the presence of the other room, which represented the presence of God. But in that other room, that inner room, the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the literal words of God, God's words written with God's own finger. The righteousness of God, the righteous requirement of God, and it was covered over with a gold covering called the mercy seat, and that's what allowed them to be in His presence because the righteousness of God was there, but the protection from the judgment of that was there because of the mercy seat that sat upon it. And the high priest could only come in there once a year having performed certain sacrifices, sprinkling the blood of those sacrifices on it because the blood represented the atonement or the payment for their sins. And so God, when they did this, God came down in a measure and dwelt in that room between the, the angels on that covering of that ark. And that presence of God, that cloud of fire by night, or fire by night and the cloud, of, uh, the cloud by day, hung over that tent as God's presence, God wanting to dwell among His people. But that's the best He could do. He couldn't go hug them. He couldn't talk to them. He could only be in that way. But He wanted that. He desired that. And that's why He had them construct this elaborate system of sacrifices. And last week, we talked about the fact that when, when they got into the promised land, that they, they had to conquer 31 different kingdoms, and they, the, 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 ar- the ark was taken and put into a town called Shiloh, which is north of Jerusalem. And the rest of the tabernacle was put in a town called Gibeon. And we saw that, that, that what happened was, um, we, we, it doesn't talk much about it for a period of time. And then what happens is, is um, uh, the Israelites begin to, to put their trust in the fact that they have the ark, not the God of the ark. We talked last week about the fact that that's a danger we all have, is we begin to worship the things of God and forget that they helped to bring us to the God that gave them to us. So here they have this beautiful covenant. And when they found that what God was presence was with them, miracles happened with this. They were successful in battle. They would put the, covenant, the mark of the covenant in front in the battle. When they crossed over the Jordan River, the priests carried this on their shoulders, on the poles, and they, they walked into the Jordan River. When they walked into the Jordan River, it parted, and they could all walk across on dry land, just as they had when Moses held his staff out. And so we saw that. We saw last week that. So they began to put their trust in the miracles of the ark and they forgot the God that the ark was, allowed to, was there to allow them to experience. And so what happens is God's presence gradually withdrew from them. And so we saw a symptom of it because we looked at the, the high priest then, Eli, who was Aaron, the first priest's grandson, and that he, was, that he and his sons, his, he, Eli was all right, but his sons were very corrupt and to the point that they were skimming things off of the offering. And they were taking what they were not entitled to because the offering part was to provide for them. But they were taking what the provision was, but they were also taking things that were given before they were sanctified to God. But the worst thing is there were all kinds of immorality going on in the temple, in the presence of the ark. These things were going on. Literally fornication taking place at the doorway. And nothing happened. God didn't judge it. Why? Because His presence wasn't there anymore. And we saw that God brings a young boy, Samuel, into that temple and he begins to grow up and become a man of God and hear the voice of God. And it says in the beginning of one of the chapters that the word of the Lord was rare in that day. It tells us elsewhere because the people did what was right in their own sight and God's presence was rarely there. So we see it's a time when they had the ark, but they didn't have the presence of God. We can have church We can have the things of church. We can have the miracles of God. We can see the hand of God, but not have His presence. But not have His presence. And so much of the church has been satisfied with that. So much of the church has been satisfied with the things of God, the miracles of God, the promises of God, but not desired the presence of God Himself. It's the difference between seeking His hands and seeking His face. It's the difference between what the children of Israel did in Psalm 103. It says the children of Israel knew God's deeds. They knew what God did for them, but Moses knew his ways. Most of you know my wife, Anita. 
She's the beautiful wife of 46 years. But I know her ways. I know the looks. I know can tell that look when she's happy. I can tell that look when she may not be quite so happy. I can tell, I can tell, I can tell what's going on inside without even looking at her sometimes by just being with her, and she can with me. Why? Because we know each other. We've lived together for 46 years, not just living together, but growing closer, more intimate with each other. And in the process, we know each other's ways. That only comes by being together in the presence. And because the children of Israel were satisfied with what God did for them, and they didn't seek Him, they didn't know His ways. Moses knew His ways. And when we seek after just the things of God, then His presence will just withdraw. He'll still do things for us, but His presence will just withdraw. He'll let us, if you're satisfied with that, He'll leave you alone. Well, He'll pursue you because He wants you. But if you insist on just what you want, eventually He'll just let you have that. And so we, that's what we looked at last time. Then we saw what happened as a result is the Philistines came out one day in, into battle to stand in battle array against the Israelites. The Israelites come out and they go to fight them and they, they get beaten. They lose about 3,000 soldiers in one day. And they say, ah, what's wrong? We're the children of God. We have a covenant with God. Ah, we forgot the covenant. We forgot the Ark of the Covenant. My goodness, let's go get it. So they sent the priests back to Shiloh and they come marching out with the Ark. They set the Ark down. Wow, we got the Philistines. Now, the Philistines saw them bring the ark down. They started trembling and shaking. Oh, my goodness, because they had faith in the ark also. And so they end, and in fact, the Philistines says, we've got to really gird ourselves up because the ark's here. Wow. And they go into battle, and what happens is the Israelites lost. They were defeated. And the worst of all things is the ark is taken by the pagan Philistines. Word gets back to Eli the priest. His two sons have died in the battle, which God had said was going to happen because Eli never dealt with their sin. And Eli, the whole high priest, faints basically, falls back. He was so fat, his neck broke. His daughter-in-law gives birth to a child, probably prematurely, and when she hears that her husband's dead, her brother-in-law's dead, her father-in-law's dead, and the ark has been taken. She names the child Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed Israel. Wow, what a state to fall into. What a, what a way to fall from having God's glory presence right in the midst of you over the ark in the middle of that tabernacle. Well, the Philistines take the ark, and they're so happy they got the ark, they put it in the temple of Dagon, who was their main priest, main, main God that they worshipped, who was part, uh, it was head of a man, the arms and hands of a man, the upper body of a man, but the lower body of a fish. And it was obviously made out of metal or wood. And when they put the ark in, that, in, the, in the temple with him, with that figure, they go to bed, they get up in the morning, and that, uh, that, that statue of Dagon has fallen over on its face. So they figure, well, that's just a bad, wind must have blown the wrong way. So they prop it back up again, go to bed, they get up the next day, and it's fallen over again with its face down to the ark. And its head's broken off, and its hand's broken off, and they realize, whoa, we got a problem here. Let's go send it to our brothers in Gath. So they ship the ark over to their other Philistines in Gath, which is where Goliath came from, and they set it up in there, and they start breaking out in boils and tumors, and they start, a plague breaks out. So they decide this is not such a good idea. We better, God of the covenant may be mad at us, so we better get it back into the hands of the Israelites. So they put it on a cart, a, a, horse draw, a, a cart of wood, which was made for this purpose. They took two milking cows, two cows that, had given, that, were, that were nursing their, their, their calves, and they set it on a road back, figuring if it takes it all the way to Israel, then we know God's hand is in it because it's not natural for a milking cow to not turn back to its calves. And so they did this, and of course it goes, it goes into a city called Jerobereath, if I remember correctly. So it comes in there, they see the cart coming, they see the ark, and they stop it, and they rejoice, and they, 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 go, get, they go get the Levites, they bring the ark off of the the cart, they break the wood up, they perform a sacrifice there, they slaughter the, the two cows as the sacri- part of the sacrifice for rejoice that the ark has been brought back. And now they go to bring it back to Jerusalem, and what happens is it gets, they put it on another ark, cart, this time the cart, the, 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 the 
the ark starts to fall off the cart, and the son, one of the sons of, of the man that was, had, was housing it there, reaches out to touch it and to hold it, and he dies on the spot. Why? Because he was not authorized under the law of Moses to touch the ark, and he died on the spot. David gets upset now. David's ticked off at God. He said, I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to bring this ark in. And look what you've done. You've, got, you, you've, 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 just, you've judged somebody. Somebody's life has been sacrificed because they were trying to do what's right. And he, he should know better, but he's obviously forgotten. So they take it into the, into the man's house, into his barn. It stays there for, I think it's three months. He, he's very blessed by God. David goes back to Jerusalem. David's now conquered all of Jerusalem. He's got it all well settled. And he's calmed down. He's decided, I'm going to go get the ark. So he goes down with his whole entourage of people to bring the ark up. He does, now he has the right people doing it. He has the Levites doing it. And he has the people that are assigned by God to, to carry the ark. And they bring it in. And what they do is every six space, every six steps, they stop and perform a sacrifice. So every six paces on the way back, there is a worship service for bringing the ark back. David's leading all of this. David's the king. To do this, he's taken off his kingly robes and he's put on the white robes of a common person. And he's, the Bible says he's dancing before the Lord. It actually means he's twirling around to the music. He is so excited that the Ark of the Covenant that represents the presence of God is coming to Jerusalem, coming to lay rest where he is king. And he comes in there. They bring it into a tent that he had prepared for this. And he goes, feeds all. He, he blesses the people with some bread and some, and some raisin cakes and to everybody that had come out for this. And he goes into the house to celebrate with his family and his daughter's looking down at him. She says, how you shamed the maidens of, 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 of Israel today, the king dancing that way before the people in common clothes. And David's answer, oh, I love this. This is where we ended. David said, I wasn't dancing in front of them. I was dancing in front of my Lord, who's given me this kingdom from your father's hands, by the way who lifted me up to be king in your father's place. I was a shepherd boy, and God has brought me to this place. Not only will I dance before him this way, but I'm going to dance before him more this way because I'm celebrating God's presence here. I don't care what people think. I don't care what people think. We're all too much aware of what other people think. We're all too uptight about whether this people like this or, you know, what do I look like to other people? What do people think of me? And when we come into church, that's our attitude so often, all of us, because we're so human in our, in our flesh. But we need to be come to the place where we've come here not for what other people think of us, but for what we think of Him. When we think of what He's done for us, we think of what He's done for you. None of us should be alive. None of us are here because we're so smart and so spiritually strong. We're all here because out of His mercy and grace, He called us and He drew us and He revealed Himself to us. Every breath we have is from His grace. Every beat of our heart is a gift from Him. We have so much to be grateful for. Whether you can see things right now or not, I can give you a whole list of things just knowing that you're alive that God's done for you. You're still here. That wasn't the devil's plan for you. You're still breathing. You're still alive here. You have much to be thankful for. And it's our God that's done it. And He's the one we've come when we come here. He's the one we've come to celebrate. So that's where we ended up last week. That's where we kind of stopped. Now David puts in his heart. This is what chapter... In First Chronicles, I should have told you. Chapter 17. 16 is where God... Um, David places the ark in this... It says in the tabern, midst of the tabernacle in verse 1, but it's not the tabernacle of Moses. That, that one is in Gibeon right now. It's a tent that he built right, right next to his, right near his, um, his palace. First Chronicles 17. came to pass that David, while David was dwelling in his house, that he said to Nathan the prophet, See, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant is under a tent of curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that's in your heart, for God is with you. So David's looking at where got, what God has done for him. He's looking at this beautiful house he's living in that God provided for him. And he's probably looking out of a window one day, and he looks out and he sees this tent, and that the ark is being housed in a tent 
a flimsy tent, and he's looking at this beautiful palace that God's provided for him, and he's saying, this isn't right. I'm dwelling in a house that's much better than the house that God's covenant, Ark of the Covenant is dwelling in. We've got to do something about that. So he gets a hold of the prophet Nathan because that's how he communicated with God. And Nathan, without asking God, says, do what's in your heart. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Because what was in David's heart was to build a house that was appropriate for God to dwell in. But look what happens. Verse 3, But it happened that that night a word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, You shall not build a house for me to dwell in, for I do not dwell, have not dwelled in a house since the time I brought up Israel to this day, I've not gone from a ten, I've, but I've gone from tent to tent, from tabernacle to another. Whenever I've moved about with all of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel who I commanded to shepherd my people? Why have you not built me a house? There's a lesson in this. Don't just assume what God wants without asking Him. Just because something looks good and sounds good, this looked good and sounded wonderful. Oh, I want to build... And he hadn't consulted God. The prophet didn't even consult God. But God spoke to him and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, have I asked for this? See, it's not our good intentions of what we do for God. It's our responding to what He asked of us. It's what pleases Him, not what we think pleases Him to bring to Him. It's a big difference. Jesus said, I talked about this last time in Matthew 7. He said, on that day, there's going to be many of you come to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to look and say, I don't know you. And they said, well, what, we did miracles in your name. We, we healed the sick. We did all kinds of things in your name. Then he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You may have done them in my name, but I never knew you. And then the key is this. He says, you who practice lawlessness, you who do what you think is right to do, you who do what you want to do, and you've not done what I've wanted you to do. You've not submitted under me to carry out my will. There are churches built out there today, I believe, that are going to hear those words because they're doing what they think is right for God without having a heart to God. What do you want for us? Or they're doing what they've seen others do. They're imitating others instead of finding out, God, what do you want us to do? My prayer is, God, what do you want here at Faith Christian Center? I care about what's happening to other churches, that they're blessed and you and your will, but I'm not competing with another church. What do you want here? This is your church. This was paid for by the blood of your son. What do you want? That's the attitude of the heart we're supposed to have, we need to have. And so that's what God is correcting here. And so God basically says, his response to David is, I don't want you to build the house for me. I want a house, but I don't want you to build it because you've been a man of war. There's blood, blood on your hands. Now, he was not angry at David. What he was saying is, you're not the one to do it. You're not the one to do it. There again, it's God's province to decide who does what for him. God says, I want your son who's going to come from you, I want him to do it because he's a man of peace. I want that place built for me at a time of peace when the land's been settled, but I've used you to conquer the land and settle the land, but you're not the one to do it. But this is David's heart, and this is where we ended up last time. Even though God had said, I don't want you to build it, David didn't then walk away and say, well, that's my son's problem, I'm going to go do what I want, I'm going to go sit on the beaches, you know, out by the sea. No, David did everything he could to get ready because it was still in his heart to build a place that was appropriate for his God to dwell in. All right, that's what we're going to pick up this time. Now, we're going to go over to chapter 21, because in the meantime, David does something else wrong. I love the Bible. It just shows people in their humanity. David did two major things wrong. He did some other things, I'm sure, but two major things wrong. Well, three, really. And, 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 um, and, and, but God forgave him, and God it overcame it because above all things the Bible says about David, he was a man after God's heart. He wasn't after what God did for him. He was after God's heart. And so God was gracious to him in a way. God was forgiving to him in a way. And so what has happened is David decides, you know what? I want to find out how strong we are for battle. So he commands his, he, he orders his commanders to take a census of the fighting men. 
Now, there were times when God told him to do that. But David didn't ask God. David decided to do this himself. And we see God got angry about that. It doesn't tell us why, but the implication is God got angry because when, we, when David was taking a census, basically, you know, what, what's the strength of our army? Then that told, tells us that David was beginning to put his trust in his soldiers and not the God who gave him the soldiers. Very important difference. See, when God told him to fight and then take a census, his trust was in God, and God instructed him to take the census for God's purposes. But here, David apparently... In, see, when things are going well, when you're prospering and things you're on a... You know, you're downhill run. Boy, things are just going well. It's so easy to stop trusting God and begin to trust in people and things. It's so easy. And that's what David had did. I don't think David had done. I don't think he was rebellious. I don't think he dug his heels in. I just think he took his eyes off of God. God got angry and a plague breaks out. And so God, David goes to the threshing floor of a man named Aruna, although in here in, in Chronicles it's a, a different name, but it's the same guy. And David says, sees an angel with a sword. And David says, I want to stop this plague. So what I'm going to do is, he says, I want to perform a sacrifice to God. So let's have a look at the end of chapter uh, 20. Well, I'll tell you what happens. So what happens is, David comes and, and perf- to perform a sacrifice there. And David says, to, and so the owner of the house comes out, or the threshing floor comes out and says, Aruna, he says, oh, you're the king. You're going to perform a sacrifice to God. I give it to you. And the powerful words of David, he says, no. I will never perform a sacrifice to my God that does not cost me something. It is not a sacrifice to my God if you've given it to me. It's only a sacrifice if it costs me something. So David buys the threshing floor from Aruna and then performs the sacrifice on it. The reason that's important is because when Solomon builds his temple... He's going to build it on this same hill or this same mountain, which is known as Mount Moriah. It's the same place where Abraham brought Isaac up to the top of to perform a sacrifice of his son's life, and God provided the ram. The same place is where God, where Moses or Abraham, David, is performs this sacrifice that stems. The, the, the plague, and it will be the same site at which Solomon builds the temple. All right, let's go on. Chapter 22, David now makes his preparations. It says, and this is the house of the Lord. David said, this is the house of the Lord, and this is the altar of the burnt offering. So David commanded to gather the aliens from the land, and Israel imported masons to cut stones and to build the house. David prepared an iron in abundance for the nails of the doors. In other words, David is having, while he's still king, is assembling all the things that needed to, necessary to build this temple for a place for his God to dwell. He's been told by God, you can't build it, that's for your son to build it. But David said, well, I'm going to take everything I know, everything I have, all resources I have, and I'm going to put it together so my son can do it. So that's what chapter uh, 22 is about. And then he gives Solomon instructions. And begins to, he says, because he's inexperienced, he gives him instructions. Verse 12, he says, oh, may the... Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding, give you charge concerning Israel, that you may keep the law of the God of Israel. Verse 19, Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord. He's talking to his son Solomon, your God. Therefore arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. And then he does other preparations. He organizes the people. He organizes the land. He organizes the priests. He organizes the Levites. Uh, He organizes in chapter 25 the musicians. In chapter 26, he assembles gatekeepers. Um, Chapter 27, he begins to establish military organization. Chapter 28, he gives more instructions. We're going to look over starting in verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know that the God of your father, know the God of your father, and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind, 
For the Lord searches all the hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will cast you off. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat, and the plans for all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of the house. So God had deposited down inside of him an, an image of what he wanted that temple to be like. And David had drawn it out. And David hands to his son Solomon the plans and says, this is what God... And see, this is how the anointing works. This is what God did with Moses on the mountain when God gave Moses the pattern of the tabernacle. If you read through the Bible, you'll find in Hebrews as well as you'll find in Exodus, it tells us what, how, what, what they made, but there's not enough detail in there for you to make an exact replica of it. For the, the ones we have out there, there's differences. Every time we have people make them for school of ministry, they come out just a little bit differently. Why? Because there's not enough in there. Why? For, for the, what that picture was was deposited in Moses in the same way God deposited in David the impression of what that was to be like. And then David wrote out what he saw inside and handed the drawing to his son Solomon. Verse 19, All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me. Hand often represents the Holy Spirit. In all the works of these plans, and David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and of good courage, and do it, and do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord my God will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until you've finished all the work of the service of the house. Chapter 29, they start receiving offerings. King David said to the assembly, My son Solomon, whom the Lord God has chosen, to be young, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, because of the temple is not for man but for the Lord. The work is great because the temple is not for man, but it's for the Lord. Now for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might gold things. And he goes down and lists the things. says down in my notes that when you total up all that was contributed by David and by the leaders, it totals 5,000 tons of gold and silver. 5,000 tons of gold. Now what's the price of gold today? I don't know, but it's of gold and silver. Verse 9, And the people rejoiced. The people rejoiced. The people, they, they were asked for an offering and the people rejoiced. They were asked to bring an offering and the people rejoiced. They rejoiced because they had offered willingly because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord and King David also rejoiced greatly. Okay. Now, let's go. We're going to go now into chapter Second uh, Chronicles. Solomon's now handed all that he needs to build the temple. He's got the drawings. He's got all the materials. His father, he's got the commissioning of the Lord. And so Solomon begins to prepare... Word goes up to King Hiram, who was the king of, of, of Tyre, which was north of, of Israel. And he's excited and basically sends him a letter, whatever I can do to help. So he sends him the cedar planks. We're going to go over now to chapter 3. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And he began to build the temple on the, began to build on the second day of the second month. And this is the foundation of the Solomon laid for the building of the house of God. Its length was 60 cubits, being according to the former measure, that's the old measure of cubits, and the width, 20 cubits. So basically, it's 90 feet long and 30 feet wide. The vestibule will be in the front of the sanctuary, was 20 cubits long, and the width of the house, and, eight, and the height of 120, and overlaid inside with pure gold. The large room had paneled with cypress. I'll give you, I'm going to give you a picture of this in a minute. Which he'd overlaid with fine gold and carved palm trees and chainwork on it. And he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty. And the gold was gold of Pavrium. 
It was overlaid the house with beams and door, overlaid the house, the beams and the doorposts, its walls and its doors, with gold, with carved cherubim on the walls. He made the most holy place. Its length was according to its width in the house, 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits long. So it's 30 feet by 30 feet. And overlaid it with six, 600 talents of gold. The weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold and overlaid the upper area with gold. And in the most holy place he made two cherubim fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits over all. So these, these, in the holy place, he's got cherubim like we're on the, are in the Ark of the Covenant. But these wings expand, each one halfway across this room. So they're bowed down facing each other. So the wings are touching and together they cover the whole 30 feet 30 feet, gold wings of these cherubim bowed down facing each other. Because what's going to happen is when the ark's brought in, it's going to be put under these wings. Okay. Let's go over to verse 13. The wings of the cherubim span 20 cubits overall. That's 30 feet. And they stood on their feet and they faced towards each other. He made a veil, which is a curtain, a blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen, and wove cherubim into it. Wove cherubim, figures of cherubim into it. And he put it in front of the temple, two pillars, he put in front of the temple, two pillars, 25 cubits high, and put a top on it, which was made of five cubits, and wreaths of chain work around it. And then he put, felt, he bring, brought furnishings into it. There were ten tables. All of this is a representative. It's an enhancement of what was in the, ark, in the, in the temple, tabernacle of Moses. So whereas there they had one temple, one table of showbread. There are ten of them, five on each side. Where there was um, uh, uh, one altar uh, of you know, incense. There's ten, one on each side, uh, five on each side. Um, and in, in, in the front of it is a vestibule. Uh, that has a huge brazen altar and then a huge laver. All right. What I'm going to do is show you some slides. And I want to take long on it because I want to go somewhere with this. But I want to give you a little bit of a picture. All right. Obviously, these are artist renderings. What you're seeing there is that the temple is the big structure in the back. There were other courtyards and things that were designed to be around it. Here's kind of another view of what it must have looked like. And here's another view. It's a little hard to see because the lights are up. What you'll see on the right-hand side, this huge bowl, which was the laver, it was supported by, by figures of oxen that supported it. They represent strength. And it was filled with water. These were all representatives of what was in the tabernacle of Moses, but on a much grander scale. You'll see on the light, left, there's this huge altar of sacrifice, which is like the brazen altar. But it's much bigger than it was, in, and it's all as it, than it was in the t tabernacle of Moses. Inside, you'll see, this is kind of a, a, a drawing of it. You'll see the, the, the outer edge, it says storerooms. There were storerooms built around it. You'll see on the right-hand side, there's two pillars out there. You'll see... The, the square, which is the brazen altar, you'll see below that, that's the laver. We don't know where, which order they were placed in. Here's another drawing of it. Kind of gives you an overview of it. All right. I don't want to dwell a lot on that. I just wanted to kind of give you some very quick picture because what, what's important is what I want to get to now. Because then they bring it in. They bring, they've got this all ready. They bring these furnishings in. That's in chapter 4. Chapter 5, verse 1. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasures of the house of God. Those are those outer rooms. Verse 2. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes in the chiefs and the fathers of Israel, and they brought to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. So all the elders came, and the Levites, because they learned their lesson about that, took the ark, and they brought the ark, the ark, the tabernacle of the meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark, were sacrificing sheep and oxen and could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. Now notice the way they do this. 
They're not just saying, hey, you guys go bring the box in and stick it in the right place. The attitude that they have towards this is everything. The reverence that they have towards this is everything. Because now they're not back where their predecessors were, which is because we have this, God's going to do things for us. They're reverencing as the place that God had ordained for his presence to come. So this represents a reverence for and a desire for his actual presence there. And as a result, David does the same thing again as when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now to transport from the from the from the from the, where he had it in the tent, now to, for Solomon to bring it into the tab, into the temple now, into its rightful place, every so feet, every so over, over feet, just like they did before, they're performing sacrifices. So they take a few steps, they perform sacrifices again. They have trumpeters out there. I mean, this is a major deal. And it's this, what they're celebrating is God's presence is coming to dwell among us again. They're celebrating God is coming in his presence to dwell among us among them again. Their heart's desire is for his presence. Okay. They're sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they can't count them. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple in the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim for the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the Ark could be seen from, the, from, from outside the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary but they could not be seen from outside of the temple itself for there they are to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with him with the children of Israel when they come out of Egypt. All right. Now they begin to sanctify themselves. Uh, let's go on down. Um, verse 11. Now what happens? So they're all set. They brought the ark. They brought it in. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests were present and had sanctified themselves without keeping their divisions. And the Levites who were the singers, all those of Asa, Ashaph, and Hermon, and Jephthah, and were their sons and brethren, stood east at the east end of the altar, clothed in white, having cymbals and stringed instruments and harps with them, and 120 priests sounding trumpets. And indeed it came to pass, when the trumpeters and the singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. This is what God's listening for when we come together. One sound, one heart crying out to him. Not a bunch of different people doing their own thing, but there was one heart focused on one purpose, which is they were calling out, they were crying out, they were worshiping the God whose presence had been restored. That was the focus of all that they were doing. To make one sound heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music and prayed, saying, For he is good and his mercy endures. The, they didn't need to have words on the wall because they only sang one thing. For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. That the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. A cloud began to roll in so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. And Solomon spoke, verse chapter 6, The Lord said He would dwell in the dark cloud, and I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell forever. Verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and he spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long and five cubits wide and three cubits high, and had set it in the middle of the court. This is outside now. And stood on it, and he knelt. This is the king. The king stands on this platform to worship the God who's now come to dwell again in their presence and the king gets on his knees in front of the entire nation with his arms open to his God 
verse 14, he said, The Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant with mercy and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you have promised to your servant David, my father. You both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand to this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised. Your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man set on the throne, the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to you their way and, and, and walk in your, my law as you have walked before me. Now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and earth cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplications, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying to you this day, that your eyes may be open towards the temple day and night. Now listen to this carefully. This applies to us. He's consecrating the purpose of this temple. God's presence is there now. His glory is now filling the place. And now Solomon's dedicating, this is why we've done this. This is what we're committing to you going forward. So this is not just a wonderful time we're having to you today. And we're going to go on about our daily affairs. Look at verse 20. That your eyes may be open towards this temple day and night towards this place where you say you have put your name. That you may hear the prayer which your servant makes to you towards this place that you may hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place when you hear, forgive. So what he's saying is we, we've made this. We've consecrated this place. You've now come and dwell here. Here's why. So that when we have need to talk to you, when we've sinned, when we have enemies come against us, we can come to this place. And we know that when we come here, it's your ears and your eyes are open that you will hear us because we've consecrated this as a place that we can come and meet with you. Even those that can't come, he says, when they look towards this place and remember this place, you've committed to hear from them. So our coming to spend time with God, our coming to worship Him is not just to get goosebumps. It's to establish a place where we can have an experience, an encounter, an interaction with the living, powerful God who redeems and delivers and saves and loves. Who wants to set you free from the bondage that you're in? Who wants to heal your body, save your marriage, turn your life around? Who wants to do those things? And yes, we've learned God lives in us. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. But there's something happens when all these temples come together as one temple, with one purpose, with one heart, where we've created a place of prayer and of worship which we've sanctified in our minds and our hearts, where we come here, it's with an attitude of respect and reverence. This is God's house. This is God's house. And God is here to meet with us. And when we have that attitude, he's saying that your heart is open so that when we have a need and we come to you, we know your heart's open. We know your ears are open. Let's go read God's answer. Verse 12, now you have the background for a very often quoted verse without understanding the background. Verse 12, after all of this, the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, listen to this, and I have, I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Second Chronicles 7.12 When I shut up heaven and there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land, in other words, when there's a pestilence, when there's, when, there's, when there's a recession, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will hear their land, heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may dwell there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. This verse is so often quoted for praying for revival 
without the preparation of sanctification and consecration of a place where we can come and pray. We want God to do His part, but God responded to their heart reaching out to Him, saying, we want a place for you. We want a place where you can come and dwell and do what you want, where you can be pleased, where you can be satisfied, where the desire of your heart can be satisfied. And in that place, then we know we can come and we know your eyes are open to us, your ears are open to us. And we want to know that in that place, because we've had that heart's desire towards you, that you will hear from heaven and you will grant our requests. And so we often quote that verse for asking God to do something, but we haven't created the atmosphere We haven't created the place where God can come with that level of His presence. Again, I know God's in us. I know God hears our prayers at home. But we're talking about changing situations. There were people that gathered together to pray in England during World War II that changed the course of the war. If you study World War II, you know that there were many things that happened that never should have happened that caused the Allies to succeed wasn't always the genius of their generals. Sometimes it was weather. Why do you think that happened? Because there were people consecrated to prayer. Why do you think the Iron Curtain suddenly fell down in, what, 1980 or whenever it was? Why do you think that happened? There were people in the eastern nations of, of Europe who committed themselves to work, to reverence God and to pray. God hears and answers prayer. But there's a power. There's a power. There's a power that happens when His presence is there. There's a power that happens when God's presence is there and a spirit of prayer begins to get released and there's, there's, there's things happening in the spirit realm that aren't happening just because we've recited some prayers out of our mind and we know some scriptures to throw up at God. One of the things that's growing in my heart is, God, where's the power in our prayer? Where's the results? Where's the results? You're a God of unlimited power and ability. Where's the results? Why are, why are we not seeing more? And what keeps coming to me is the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, I didn't come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom, but I came to you in the demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit. Where's the power of prayer? Where's the power of the Spirit to deliver and to restore and to redeem? Jesus, Jesus, what did he do around people's needs? There were people with bondages, demonic bondages, physical bondages, blind eyes, lame. There were people that had no legs that came to him. And what did he do? What he prayed for them, what he touched them, what he spoke to them, legs grew out, blind eyes opened, deaf ears unstopped. People with leprosy were healed instantly. People came out of graves. Things happened when Jesus spoke. And we are his body. He's given us his name. He's given us his spirit. Why don't we see it? Because we don't have the consecration and reverence for him that he had for his father. He was wholly consecrated to his father. He said, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what my father says. Only. Jesus didn't have God's part of the day and then his part of the day. Jesus didn't have God time and then his time. His whole life was given over to his father. See, that sounds like terrible bondage. He's the freest man that's ever lived. It's our time, it's our ways that create the bondage. And so here we see God's desire to be among His people. And when they came and again reverenced it, when, 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 they, when they didn't reverence Him, when they didn't desire Him, when all they wanted was Him to do miracles from them, for them using this gold box, He wasn't there. But when they began to desire Him again, when they began to desire the God that had given them the ark, when they began to desire Him and began to honor Him and began to reverence Him and began to to seek Him in His presence, God's presence comes back. And I didn't cover it, but there was an earlier place when when they they finished the temple and and first dedicated, it says this cloud came in. In this place, when when He consecrated it, it says God's glory came in. When they built the temple and they brought the ark in, God's cloud that was on the mountain came in. But when Solomon got on his knees and humbled himself and committed this as a place that was built so that God could come and establish his name there, that it could be a place where they could come and meet with him and interact with the living God, God's cloud turns into his glory. 
and the priests couldn't stand. They couldn't stand up. I've tasted that. Years ago in the small church I had, we had a Sunday night service. And we were worshiping God. I don't remember what happened. But the next thing I know, I turn around, we're all on the ground. And we can't get up. I mean, we can't get up. And nobody's miserable. We're all happy. We don't know. It's, it was the weirdest thing. I can't get up. I can't get up off the ground. 4 a.m., we get released to get up. 4 a.m., the power of God fell in that place that night. The glory. I didn't see a cloud. I just, we were worshiping God. And God demonstrated His power to us. <laughs> One guy was on his way home and a policeman pulls him over at 4.30 in the morning. He says, where have you been? Well, I'm coming from church. Yeah, right. <laughs> Tell your wife that. <laughs> the world didn't understand. If you go forward four generations, you'll find there's a time when the king is Jehoshaphat. And three nations decide they want to take him out. He's the king of Judah, the southern nation at the time. He gets up one day and gets a report from one of his spies that there's three nations that have converged together that are marching towards him. And he goes and confirms that that's true and says that he, fear hit him. Fear is, not, fear is natural. It's what you do with the fear. He set himself to hear from God. So that day he set a fast so that they would seek God. So we need to hear from you. One of the verses that's so important to me, he said, I don't know what to do. We've never been in this place before, but our eyes are on you. But if you go back and read that, you'll find in Solomon's prayer, in Jehoshaphat's prayer, he refers to what Solomon did here. He said, we've established this place so that when bad things happen to us, we can come and we can seek you. And you've promised that you will hear from heaven and that you will answer you. Let me ask you, have you created a place where when things don't go well in your life, when all hell seems to break loose against you, have you established a place where you know you can go with confidence that God's going to hear you and interact with you? You need to prepare that when things are at peace. And I believe God's desire is to establish this as a place. When we have prayer on Tuesday night, when we come to worship Him on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, that God wants to establish this as a place where we can come with confidence as, as a people together that God is here. God is here to hear our prayer. God is here to respond. God is here to release His power in His lives. And as we begin to end 2013 and look forward to 2014, I'm expecting that we're going to begin to see things we've never seen before. I'm expecting that God's going to do some things that he, we've, we've never seen Him do before. I'm expecting that as long as our, our role is to consecrate our hearts towards Him, to come as Solomon declared, as David declared, to come. And this is a place, Lord, we've set aside with Your name on it. This is here for Your purposes to satisfy the desire of your heart. And Lord, our confidence is that as we do that, that this is a place where we can come. And when we come together with one heart, one accord, seeking you, that you will answer our cry of our heart and that you will meet the needs of the people, not just ours here, but God wants us to be interceding for other people around us, for a city, for states around us that desperately need to know him. They need the power of the Spirit of God released. And it's going to take people committed to do that. And God's drawing us by that. Let's pray. Father, we look at the instructions from your word and the teachings in your word. And we now trust them into the hands of the Holy Spirit to begin to work in our lives the work that only he can do. For, Father, these are not matters of our mind. These are not matters of our flesh. These are matters of our heart. You responded because it was David's heart that cried out to you. 
You responded because it was Solomon's heart that cried out to you. You responded because it was the hearts of the priests that cried out to you. And Father, work in our hearts to bring us to the place where we desire you more than anything else, where our hearts are reaching out to you who's been reaching out to us all along. And Lord, again, as we begin to come to the end of this year and look back over all that you have brought us through, may not be everything we've wanted yet, but we certainly haven't done everything you've wanted either. But we look, Lord, at what you have done for us. And we take great comfort in it because we realize the God who's done that is preparing and desiring to do so much more next year. Father, work in our hearts by your Spirit. What only your Holy Spirit can do to draw us together of one heart and of one mind to love you, to honor you, to worship you, and to seek you. It's in your hands. Draw us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.